Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn and Love hosted by Richard Osler. My guest in on today's podcast joining joining us from her home in Utah County is my friend Dr. Deborah McClendon. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much Richard for having me. Um, Dr. McClendon is going to talk about scrupulosity and her new book, and I'll introduce that in a second. She's also been on the podcast three other times because I'm so passionate about this subject and Dr. McClendon's work. Um, The first time she talked about this was in October of 2019, episode 191. Um, Then she talked about a book she wrote, um, episode 231, about stronger marriages. And then she came back on on episode 336 in October of 2020 to do a Q&A with scrupulosity. And so it's been, this is coming out roughly in October of 2023. So it's been three years since you've been on the podcast. And um, she has written a really serious book, listeners. I think it's the first and most comprehensive book about scrupulosity in our faith community. And she's going to talk about that book. But if you haven't heard our personal story, I just want to share it in a couple minutes. Our son, Ben, was serving a mission in Samoa and, and um, just a kid that had a great life before his mission then got in a really dark place in Samoa. And we didn't understand why suicidal ideation was creeping into his lives. And, you know, you pray and you fast and you go to the temple as parents, but it's often prayers are answered through other people. And I went to lunch with a friend describing his symptoms and the friend who, like Dr. McClendon, is a clinical, trained clinical therapist recognized this sounded like scrupulosity and it was the missing it was the diagnosis we were looking for and it turns out that he had a therapist on america's samoa becky edwards who's since um, run for political office that had enough experience in this space to help him get into a sustainable space but then with covid um, all the missionaries samoa were evacuated and then my wife found dr deborah mcclendon's ensign article and i get emotional it came out about the time of his diagnosis or a little before. And um, then we were able to get Ben to visit Dr. McClendon. And this um, challenge correctly diagnosed and, and with the correct tools that Dr. McClendon is going to talk about can be um, a path to healing. And Ben has been, is, I don't know if he'd call him healed, but he's in a spot where he's moved on with his life. This is not defining his life. He understands when it comes into his life. I think he's contributed anonymously to the book. So this is a subject listeners as parents and as local leaders. I wish I understood earlier. I wish it was part of mission prep, for example, so that um, our missionaries and just our youth were exposed to this and parents so they could recognize this because it attacks the things that are most important to LDS people is um, their worthiness and in an unhelpful way and can lead to really dark thoughts. And so um, I'm so grateful for you are the answer to our prayer, Dr. McClendon. And I've had many guests and many people reach out to me informally and talked about either your direct work as their therapist, the things you've written and broad circle have helped them. So a bunch of people are grateful for what you're doing. Let me just You're read. welcome. Welcome to everyone. I'll read. I just hope it's helpful. I'll read, and then I want to get Dr. McClendon. This is just a little bit about the book. In the show notes, listeners will, if you want to um, learn more about Dr. McClendon and her resources, um, we'll link to her website, DebraMcClendon.com, in the show notes. We'll link to the Amazon link where you can buy this book. Well, it's at Desert Book. You can link to 
We'll put the Desert Deseret Book link on the show notes. Let me just um, read a little bio because Dr. McClendon might not be um, as, as honest about her really wonderful bio. <laughs> That's a, what I'm saying. She's modest. Dr. <laughs> Dr. McClendon is a licensed psychologist in the state of Utah. Dr. McClendon specializes in treating people with religious OCD scrupulosity. She has published articles in Anxiety and Scrupulosity in the Ensign, LDS Living, and the religi- religion, Religious Educator. She's also been interviewed in several podcasts. She's a dynamic public speaker addressing mental health and anxiety. She speaks each week, at, each year at BYU Education Week and has also spoken at BYU's conferences. And then everything that she talks about is articles or podcasts or online courses. Once again, will be at um, DebraMcClendon.com. The name of this book is Freedom from Scrupulosity, Reclaiming Your Religious Experience from Anxiety and OCD. And that is a well-named book. So with that, I'll turn it over to you and get you talking. Uh, Thank you very much. I just hope this can be helpful to anyone that's listening. For those who are familiar with my my writings, um, they've, they've seen me give this quote, and I wanted to start with this. This is by Neil A. Maxwell. There's a difference, therefore, between being anxiously engaged and being over-anxious. And I absolutely love that idea because we are in a community of hard workers, and we are in a community of very devout people who love the Lord and work very hard to follow the covenant path. And yet there is a balance. There is a nuanced line between being zealous and being anxiously engaged and being over anxious and having that anxiety become problematic and even pathological in our lives to the point where it's actually diminishing our ability to live as valiant worshipers of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So there is a difference. We want to be anxiously engaged, but we do not want to be over anxious. So for those who are listening, who feel like they have some over-anxious tendencies, uh, hopefully this will be helpful. I wanted to start just briefly, I won't spend too long on this, but talking about the normative nature of anxiety. Not all anxiety is bad. And so just because we have anxious symptoms doesn't mean that this is a problem. So our sympathetic nervous system gets activated with a fight or flight response. When we are anxious, it's mobilizing energy. Adrenaline is released by adrenal glands. And then we have an opposite side, the parasympathetic nervous system that helps restore our body to a state of calm or rest and digest. And it reverses a lot of the physiological symptoms. So our pupils that got bigger when we were anxious constrict again. Our saliva that got dried out when we were nervous gets stimulated again. Our heartbeat slows down. So this anxiety, our Heavenly Father has actually given us. He gives us good, happy, peaceful emotions, but he's also given us some some hard ones. And anxiety is one of those hard, difficult emotions that was given to us by a loving Heavenly Father. So we say, well, then what's what's the deal? Why, Why do I have this? So anxiety is about anticipating future danger. It notifies us of risk. And then as I talked about these physiological sensations, it heightens our senses to help us focus only and exactly on what we need to focus on. So a moderate level of anxiety 
is actually helpful to us. So our goal in anxiety treatment, regardless of where someone is on a spectrum from having mild symptoms to maybe debilitating symptoms, our goal is not to completely abolish all anxiety and say anxiety is now zero. Anxiety is going to be part of our life throughout our life. And it helps us in many, many ways. You think about how anxiety maybe has helped you in your life. Has it helped you prepare better for a presentation? Has it helped you study better for a university exam, for example? Um, Has it maybe caused you to be a little more humble when you've had to have a hard talk with a loved one? So we are not trying to get rid of all of your anxiety, but what we're trying to do is make sure it stays in that healthy normative range where it's informing us accurately. It's giving us valid information. The problem is when anxiety gets too high, the information it's giving us now isn't really valid anymore. So anxiety can become problematic. If we're at a moderate range of anxiety, like I talked about, we actually perform better. But what has happened in your life when you've got really anxious? You know, have you ever choked? Have you gone into an exam and you've known the material and you just choke completely? That's not because you don't know the material. It's because your anxiety was too high. So that's when anxiety can become problematic. Now, we can even take it one step further if your anxiety is even higher, where it's not just in a particular situation, maybe a performance demand situation, but it's becoming kind of chronic and pervasive in your life. We might call it pathological anxiety, or I use the phrase a lot, um, toxic anxiety. And the reason I like the phrase toxic is because the word toxic is poison. And this level of anxiety poisons us and it poisons our lives. It it does not help us and it does not give us accurate information. So you may have more serious problem with anxiety if your anxiety persists, if it feels uncontrollable, if it feels overwhelming. You're all saying, yep, tick, yep, tick, yep, tick, right? If it's interfering with your daily activities. And remember, anxiety is to anticipate legitimate danger. So if it's persisting and being uncontrollable and overwhelming and interfering with your daily activities, what that means is you're now experiencing anxiety outside of legitimate threat and danger. And it's become very pervasive. So that's when you really want to take a look at things and say, hey, maybe this is something I need to get some help to work on. Now, anxiety, one piece of anxiety across the board, mild anxiety to toxic anxiety that I'm sure your listeners have all experienced, is anxiety creates a strong urge to escape, right? Those physiological sensations, your heart beating, the nausea, the worry, it's very uncomfortable. And so we want to avoid. And when we escape an anxiety-producing situation, it actually reinforces the anxiety and makes it more difficult to engage in a situation the next time. So for example, if you had a public speaking phobia, right? And you were given an assignment to speak in a sacrament meeting. If you are working on this talk, working on this talk, and the day of you're like, I can't do it. And you call and say, hey, you're going to have to find someone to cover for me. That avoidance of the actual talk on that Sunday is going to make it much harder to be able to do something in the future and be able to step over that, that 
that threshold of courage to say, I'm just going to do it anyway. But if you lean into the fear and you engage with the thing you fear rather than avoiding, now you gain power and the anxiety diminishes. And that's the heart of anxiety treatment. So the vicious cycle of anxiety looks something like this. If If your listeners can imagine a circle here. If you have anxiety at the top of the circle, and that anxiety has now peaked your physiological sensations. So maybe your heart's beating, maybe your stomach is a little sick. So you start thinking, oh my gosh, this doesn't feel good. So you increase scanning for danger. You're looking for things that are wrong. And then your attention, because you're focusing on those symptoms, you're focusing on what else can be wrong. Your attention narrows and shifts all to yourself. And it's all about your own experience. And that's one thing that um, toxic anxiety really does is it makes us self-centered, not because we're not loving, compassionate, charitable people, but because we are absolutely so miserable, we can't think about anything but our distress and our trauma. So what happens then is that misery is so intense it leads to escape or avoidance. And so people will just bow out. The problem is the um, relief, we'll say. The relief that comes from avoiding an anxiety-producing situation is only short-term. And all of your listeners who have avoided repeatedly absolutely know what I'm talking about. You might feel better for a minute. You might feel better for a day. But all of a sudden... uh, Next time the situation comes along, there's your anxiety again. So long-term, the avoidance actually makes things worse. You're going to have an increase in the physical symptoms of anxiety. You're going to have more worry. And one of the biggest symptoms I see in the people that I work with, a loss of confidence about your own ability to cope with your life. So that loss of confidence is devastating. Um... I work with very intelligent people, very faithful people as far as uh, gospel commitment. And they come in with absolutely no confidence about being able to handle their anxiety or their daily activities or anything about their life. Now, on the contrast, what's nice is when people start to get better in treatment, that's one of the biggest things that changes the fastest. I start to see people get their smile back and a little glint in their eye. And they're like, hey, I got this. Like their confidence. They, they may not be out of the, the woods as far as the treatment, but they're seeing the vision of like, hey, I know what to do and I can do this. So we want to make sure as your listeners are thinking about the anxiety in their own life, that they are not feeding the vicious cycle of anxiety. But hopefully through our discussion today, they'll learn maybe how to reverse that vicious cycle? How do I stop escaping? How do I stop stop avoiding? So um, did you have any questions or comments about that no, before I move on to an, just, another topic, Richard? Go ahead, move on. Okay. So one of the foundational pieces that um, I look at with clients when I meet them and they're talking about their scrupulous concerns is we look at this idea of how anxiety and the spirit communicate to us differently. So um, you mentioned an Enzyme article. I have two Enzyme articles, one from April of 2019 and one from September of 2019. The one from April really focuses on this idea 
of how anxiety communicates to us and how that actually is very different than how the spirit communicates to us. So the spirit tends to really communicate in soft, nuanced ways. Um, The scriptures refer to the spirit as the still small voice. Your listeners are familiar with that. In the Book of Mormon, we read, um, it came to pass when they heard this voice from heaven and beheld that it was not a voice of thunder, neither was it a voice of a great tumultuous noise, but behold, it was a still voice of perfect mildness, as if it had been a whisper, and it did pierce even to the very soul. And I love that verse because it contrasts the voice of thunder and the voice of a great tumultuous noise, that's the voice of anxiety. The anxiety is very forceful, very demanding, very accusatory, very strong. It is not subtle. It's not a whisper. So if you're, if you're getting these, these feelings, then you think this must be the spirit telling me that I'm going to hell. That's not how the spirit communicates. Um, the prophet Joseph Smith taught to just support that idea that the spirit reveals itself generally without noise or tumult. Um, And Elder Bednar more recently taught the spirit of the Lord usually communicates with us in ways that are quiet, delicate, and subtle. And I really like that. And then one last one, just uh, some recent uh, teachings from our apostles. This is Elder Renlund. The scriptures teach that the voice of the Holy Ghost is mild and still, like a whisper, not loud or noisy. It is simple, quiet, and plain. It can be piercing and burning. It affects both mind and heart. It brings peace, joy, and hope, not fear, anxiety, and worry. It invites us to do good, not evil, and it is enlightening and delicious, not mystifying. This is a really important principle because the people that have scrupulous fears are almost 100% of the time when they're having their toxic anxiety, they're experiencing the anxiety, but they're misinterpreting it as this must be the spirit giving me some message. Maybe it's a message about some deep character flaw that I really must have, even though I'm not aware of it. (laughs) Maybe it's about some big sin that I committed when I was younger and I didn't remember about it and I haven't repented of it. Or, oh, maybe it's a detail. Maybe I confessed and worked through a sin and was forgiven, but oh, now there's this detail. And I'm not sure if this detail now changes everything. And so the anxiety creates so much fear. Uh, One client really poignantly expressed this. If the spirit is pushing you to repent, it is not accompanied by fear, but OCD brings fear tons of it. I know it is the OCD because there is no love in it. And this same client only a week ago talked about having a revelation where she needed to repent about a couple of minor things in her life. And she said, I knew it was the spirit because there was clarity, there was no fear, and I knew how to fix it. But when it's anxiety, there's a whole lot of confusion, a whole lot of fear. And a lot of times people feel very paralyzed. So I invite your listeners to think about how they have felt when they know they've received revelation in their life. And maybe they can't think of a recent example, but maybe a a more distant even example, maybe when they knew they should go on a mission, or maybe they knew they wanted to ask this person to marry them. Uh, A time when they did repent and they felt peace and joy. 
And then I want them to think about when they know they were anxious, what was that experience like and what did it feel like? And I want them to kind of jot down their own kind of anxiety versus the spirit chart. The April 2019 Enzyme article, which is now the Leahona, it has a chart in there that I've put together based on feedback and, and ideas from, from clients and their experiences. I'm going to invite your listeners to think about those ideas and make their own chart. And when they're anxious and they're struggling with what to do, they can go back at this chart and say, which side of the chart am I on? Is, is this how the spirit communicates to me? Or am I under a different influence here? Is this the influence of toxic anxiety? Now, why is this important? I begin therapy usually with this type of discussion because from the outset, it determines our intervention. So if I am receiving a spiritual prompting, maybe I need to go apologize to my husband for something I said that was snarky or something like that, right? If it's a legitimate prompting from the spirit, my intervention is to obey the spirit. I want to follow the spirit. I want to do what it says to do. And as I do that, my life is going to be blessed. Absolutely. However, if what I'm experiencing is born from toxic anxiety, there's not a legitimate sin or something that I need to repair with the repentance or apology. If it's born from anxiety and we say, hey, this is actually an anxious process here. Our intervention is not only to not obey, it's actually to do the opposite, as I talked about. Instead of avoiding, we're going to lean into it and do it on purpose. So based on the answer to our question, which side of the chart I'm on, that answers which direction you're going to go as far as intervention. If it's to intervene in accordance with the Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of truth, absolutely obey. Absolutely do it. Take care of that. But if this is toxic anxiety, you're not going to do that. Instead, you're going to say, oh, I need to intervene on the level of anxiety treatment. What have I learned about dealing with anxiety? So I think that's a really important piece. Why it gets so tricky, I believe, is because of the strong physiology that's involved in the anxiety, right? It's, it's getting all of those, the adrenaline going, all of those physiological sensations going. And so it kind of demands that you pay attention to it because it's so overpowering. And so it feels to people like, well, if it's this strong, it must be real. It must be valid. So I need to do it. And then they buy into it hook, line, and sinker. And this now becomes their reality. The problem is it's in the absence of legitimate threat or danger. So it becomes a problem. The thoughts are actually irrational, but the toxic anxiety makes them believe that they're very, very serious and very important and they need to address it or they're going to, as the statement is, you know, go to hell. As, as often people from scrupulosity really fear that outcome. So that leads us into a discussion about the nature of God. Why are people with these types of fears so scared of punishment and condemnation and fearful about God? So um, there are a few ideas here about um, salvation. And I think it, it, it ties into the nature of God very well as anxiety increases. So there are some religious belief systems, denominations, you would say, 
that believe in what some researchers call cheap grace. And this cheap grace is um, the belief that everything for our salvation is dependent on God. We don't actually have to do anything. We just have to believe and, and be saved. So the belief about God's nature in that belief system is that God's permissive. It's not going to hold us accountable. And um, we as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have a different view of salvation. And researchers call it costly grace. And costly grace means there is something required of God. And it was very costly because it cost the best blood, which was the Son, Jesus Christ. But also there is something required of the believer for their own salvation. And we believe in the two great commandments were to love God and to love other people as well. Now, in costly grace, we have a belief about the nature of God, that God is merciful and he is just. We believe in a good God. And we also believe in a loving, long-suffering God who's full of mercy. And yet there is also a peace that he is also full of justice. And he maintains a beautiful tension in both of those areas. However, as people kind of move beyond what maybe the doctrine teaches about God and get kind of tied up in their own little issues, sometimes you can have a view of salvation that researchers call legalism. But uh, this may not be a familiar term to your listeners. Legalism is a strict, literal, or excessive conformity to a religious code. It's a strict belief and overemphasis on conduct through specific works for God's approval and acceptance, and the lack of understanding and knowledge of accepting the grace of God towards the achievement of salvation. So, the perfect scripture to illustrate a legalistic perspective towards salvation is uh, the famous Matthew 23, 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, ye hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. So problematic in the culture of religion at times is they move away from the doctrinal position of God is merciful and just and moves into this place of legalism where God is now strict and rigid. You've got all these rules and you need to take care of them perfectly. And the gospel becomes a checklist here in the legalistic per, uh, perception of salvation. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean someone has scrupulosity. You may be in a position. I've had people talk about their missionary service and their mission president was so over-focused on perfect obedience that a lot of the weightier, more important principles of the gospel were left not really attended to because there was such a focus on boom, 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 cross your T's, dot your I's and do all of this. That is not doctrinally the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we get into a legalistic perspective, we are moving away from the nature of God as we know it and creating a different version of that. So legalism, the view of God is that he's strict and rigid. So what that means is from that perspective, to achieve salvation, nearly everything is on the individual 
And God only sits back and is just the judge of whether you did good enough or not. Okay. Now, if we blow past legalism and add a really huge dose of toxic anxiety to it, we get scrupulosity. Okay. So you see how we've kind of moved along this continuum, cheap grace, costly grace, which is where we want to be, legalism, and now scrupulosity. So scrupulosity has a massive amount of anxiety on top of this legalistic perspective. And now the view of God as a good God has kind of dissolved away. And people who very much have massive testimonies of God's goodness and their and his doctrine, in an anxious moment that dissolves away, they just have fear. And so in the scrupulous perspective, God is malevolent. And if we say, well, how much is on God? How much is on the person in this view? Don't even bother. The system is rigged. You're never going to make it. <laughs> and uh, that's where scrupulosity you can see really corrupts one's religious perspective because all of God's good nature has dissolved the way into fear. So um, I think that that's a very important piece because the individuals who struggle trouble, excuse me, the individuals who struggle with scrupulosity are not people who lack faith. They are not people who lack devotion. They are not people with tremendous character flaws, and they're just doomed to not make it. They are wonderful disciples of Christ with an anxiety problem. And that anxiety is what makes them so fearful. And it, it corrupts their view of God and the, their view of how God achieves salvation, which is through costly grace. Yes, we want to be faithful and believe and keep the commandments of Jesus Christ. And we also enjoy God's mercy and his love and the atonement of our Savior that covers us for the imperfections of mortality. So scrupulosity does a really big number on people because it corrupts their religious experience. So now they can't feel peace. They can't feel comfort. They might turn to the scriptures and all they see are the scriptures that talk about damnation, or they might turn to the temple and all they feel is unworthiness and I shouldn't be here and, oh, I'm going to be damned because I'm not taking my covenant seriously because I'm in the temple when I shouldn't be, uh, even though from the way they're living their life, they're perfectly worthy, but their emotions make them feel that they're not. So all of that leads us into this discussion about scrupulosity. So hopefully I haven't overwhelmed you too much with the foundational work. Um, your religious experience can be reclaimed as you clear out the toxic anxiety. So treatment for scrupulosity is not about convincing you to have more faith or trying to teach you the principles better because you don't understand them. Scrupulosity clears out the weeds of anxiety. Sorry, scrupulosity treatment clears out the weeds of anxiety so now you can see your savior more clearly. So the therapist isn't getting in the way and acting as a savior for you. The therapist is clearing the anxiety out so now you can have an uncorrupted 
view of your Savior and of your Heavenly Father and their love for you rather than the fear from the anxiety. So let's define scrupulosity. Let's get a little bit into this. Scrupulosity is derived from the Latin word scrupulum, meaning small stone. So if you think about going for a little hike and you get a little pebble that pops up and hits you on the ankle and drops down into your shoe, how far do you hike, Richard, before you stop to get it out? Not very far, usually. Not very far, (laughs) right? So think about that with scrupulosity. This is like something that is just grating constantly again and again and again. It's not a huge catastrophic thing like a huge car accident or a diagnosis of cancer that may be leading to premature death. But it is this irritant that just wreaks irritation and pain and distress and trauma because it is just always, always, always there. So one one client shares the story in, in the book. He calls it his, um, when he talks about rumination, which we'll talk about in a minute, he talks about a rumination app as if it's an app on your smartphone. And it says, instead of the app getting closed down, it's just always running in the background. So anytime his brain was not focused on work or family or something specific that he was doing, it immediately just slid right into that scrupulous app and the rumination app. So when you think about scrupulosity, it is just this persistent torturing thing again and again, day in and day out for days, months, years, decades even. A cardinal feature of scrupulosity is the fear of persistent uncertainty, which leads to anxiety and fear about whether or not one has committed religious or moral sin, whether they're worthy. Uncertainty is present in all of our lives every single day, and we just accept that. But when scrupulosity comes in, the anxiety is so high, the individual can't tolerate that uncertainty very well. And they want to guarantee, they want surety, or they want reassurance, to use a common word in OCD treatment, that they are okay. Problem is, we don't have that kind of certainty in life at all. But certainly in religious life, where there's a lot that is um, symbolic, a lot that is nuanced, and um, the fact that we are imperfect mortals and we have to manage this imperfection um, along with our desires to improve. So this scrupulosity causes so much fear about uncertainty. And interestingly, you would think it would make people better at living their religion because they're so scared about it. But actually, it doesn't make them better at living their religion because they become so myopic. We talked about earlier with the anxiety, your, your, your attention narrows and focuses on yourself. You become very self-centered and self-focused. So you may become very concerned about something your anxiety has grabbed onto, maybe a fear of perfect honesty or a fear of living the law of chastity. Um, And what's interesting of the way that toxic anxiety works, you may have a huge fear about this and consume all your time thinking about it. And you may actually not pay attention to other parts of the gospel that are just as important or even more important, perhaps. So you don't become better at living your religion. In fact, some philosophers explored this question in a book that they wrote on scrupulosity. And they asked if people with scrupulosity were moral saints. 
And they came to the conclusion that they are not moral saints because their good acts are done out of a fear of punishment in order to neutralize the anxiety that they're feeling. The, the good acts are not done out of a genuine, charitable, loving nature. So when you are doing something out of fear, you're not living your religion according to your true values. So diagnostic criteria for scrupulosity. Scrupulosity is a subtype of obsessive compulsive disorder. And some people, especially if they have scrupulosity in a way that is fairly uh, predominantly scrupulous, they are surprised when they hear that it's a type of OCD. Because a lot of people think about OCD and they think, oh, that's the hand-washing stuff, right? But scrupulosity is a type of OCD that is predominantly obsessional. Now, it's not only obsessional, uh, but obsessive compulsive disorder brings in both obsessions, which are unwanted, intrusive, irrational, distressing thoughts. And then they bring in compulsions, which are the things that they're doing to try to get their anxiety to go away. Now, in scrupulosity, um, the compulsions are not always overtly noticeable. They're not washing their hands 200 times a day but they might be ruminating, which is when they're analyzing and replaying things again and again and again for hours and hours and hours. That's the main compulsion that I see in scrupulosity. Um, the obsessions and compulsions in OCD are time-consuming. They're taking up more than an hour per day for someone, and they cause significant distress and impairment. So my clients as I kind of looked back at my clients over the last few years, I would say about 60% of them have scrupulosity as like the predominant thing that they came to therapy working on. And then about 40% of them have what we call as a mixed presentation. So because scrupulosity is OCD, which is about toxic anxiety, they also get anxiety in other areas that are not just religious. So many of my clients, about 40%, have other OCD fears as well. So I do have clients that have fear of germs and contamination or of getting someone else sick. I do have clients that fear doing something horrible and sexual to a child. It's called pedophilia OCD, where the obsessional thoughts are around hurting a child sexually, even though they would never in their life ever want to do anything like that. And it horrifies them. So... A mixed presentation says, I've got OCD around several different flavors. So some people question, like, is scrupulosity really OCD? And the more that I work with people, the more I say, absolutely, because the toxic anxiety process is the same. We have a few nuanced treatment things we do with scrupulosity that are a little bit different, but the toxic anxiety process between my clients who only have fears of worthiness, for example, they're the exact same as my clients who are struggling with um, any of these other fears that we just talked about. So let's talk a little bit about what is involuntary in OCD and what is voluntary. Um, there are three areas of that's involuntary that you can't control with OCD, but that doesn't mean you can't try. It doesn't mean you can't get treatment and get help. There are two voluntary areas that you can influence, and that's what we focus on treatment. So I just want to review these and talk about them in turn. 
The involuntary processes in OCD. Number one, intrusive thoughts. Um, the the do- Diagnostic Statistical Manual um, talks about those as forbidden or taboo thoughts. So intrusive thoughts, you can't control whether you have a thought that pops into your head or not. Anxiety and the automatic trigger of the flight or flight fight or flight response when you encounter a feared stimulus. You can't control whether your body all of a sudden freaks out with anxiety because of a thought that you had. And the other thing you can't control and do anything about is that the compulsions or avoidance that you do use to try to soothe your anxiety and to feel better actually make it worse over time. You can't control that either. However, there are two things you can control. Your interpretation and response to the unwanted intrusive thoughts. And number two, whether you choose to use compulsions and avoidance in response to the anxiety or not. So let's talk about those in turn. Intrusive thoughts. Um, My clients are often interested, and I talk about this in the book as well, that I have intrusive thoughts that come in at different times. And these are thoughts that are not in line with my values. They're not in line with my beliefs about how I want to live my life or what I believe religiously. They may be morbid. They may be inappropriate sexual thoughts. They may be dishonest thoughts. I mean, just random stuff. And the thing is, I'm not making a huge disclosure by saying that because we all have that. It's kind of how the human brain just kind of works. It's kicking out thousands of thoughts every day. So they've done some official research on this. Research shows that 94% of people experience unwanted intrusive thoughts, images, or impulses. And then one of the, one of the biggest names in OCD research, Dr. Abramowitz, he talked about that research and then said, and the rest of the people are lying. Hmm. 100% of us are having some types of intrusive thoughts at some point. So um, one foundational research study that was done all the way back in 1978 took um, a list of clinical obsessions, intrusive thoughts that people with OCD had, and they gave them to some researchers. And they also took the content of intrusive thoughts from people who did not have OCD, gave them to the researchers, mixed them all up. The researchers could not, by content alone, uh-huh. tell you which thought went to the OCD person and which thought went to the non-OCD person. Wow. Isn't that fascinating? That's fascinating. I th- and, and the reason I think that's so important for those who are listening, you are not a bad person by having a horrible, yucky, bad thought. We're all having them. Now, where the problem comes in is how you manage the thought that you have. And if you approach that thought with fear, because you feel threatened that it must mean something about you that is negative, then that can spiral an obsessive compulsive process. Okay, let's talk about the compulsions. I talked about rumination already. Um, Rumination, again, is when you're just analyzing and thinking and replaying and constantly torturing yourself thinking about something because you're trying to figure it out. And what I'd like you listeners to know is that rumination is not an effective problem-solving strategy. (laughs) I've never had one client say, because I ruminated for an extra 12 hours, I fixed it and I solved my problem. Not once. So um, I want you to be aware that rumination is a compulsion. 
People don't realize they're performing a compulsion because it's mental. But a compulsion can be any act, mental or physical, that people are doing to try to relieve their anxiety and feel better. Another compulsion often seen in scrupulosity is compulsive prayer. People may pray for hours and hours on end or many, many, many times throughout the day. Uh, Compulsion of confession. And this is where people will confess again and again and again, and they don't receive relief from the confession. And I'll give you some examples in a minute of that. Because the confession is not born from a legitimate sin that needs to be resolved, it's born from anxiety and they're trying to make themselves feel better. Another one that the family members that are listening to this have certainly experienced is reassurance seeking. The individual will want to tell their family members or friends about their thoughts or their worries and say, am I okay? Was this okay that I did this? What do you think about this? And that reassurance seeking is a compulsion. Part of the reassurance seeking also is just like over-apologizing or sharing too much information. It's all along that same lines of the reassurance seeking. You're giving a lot of information to people, hoping that they will give you feedback that you really are okay. So I'd like to share with you a little bit about confession because it's one of the biggest problematic areas in scrupulosity. St. Therese Martin, um, a nun in France from the 19th century, she struggled with scrupulosity from when she was a child. And this was a quote that she, uh, this was something that she said about the futility of compulsive confession. Um, She said, I had no peace till I had told Marie everything. And Marie was her sister. So her sister had become her confessor that she just talked to about with everything and was getting her reassurance. Yet she acknowledged, this was most painful since I imagined I was obliged to tell absolutely all my thoughts, even the most extravagant. As soon as I had unburdened myself, I felt a momentary peace but it passed like a lightning flash and my martyrdom began again. A lightning flash. How quick is that? The relief, remember when we talked about the vicious cycle of anxiety, I said the relief of avoidance is only short term. For her, it had become so short term, it was like a lightning flash and immediately the anxiety was up again in her face. And that's something your listeners who have struggled with this for a long time, have recognized the more you do compulsions, the less they actually help you feel better, the shorter it becomes to the point where some people don't even experience any relief at all. So that was kind of her experience. One of my clients said this about his compulsive confession. I constantly have thoughts that I did something immoral or sinned every single day. I constantly obsess, argue, play over, justify, try to ignore, try to forget, and try to get rid of thoughts about past sins and mistakes in my head. So you listeners just heard a lot of rumination he's doing, didn't you? I would constantly go in and confess to priesthood authority about past mistakes and sometimes about little things that I thought were sins. I continued to confess over and over again to the point where I was confessing almost every week. Before confessing each time, my mind told me it was the last thing, but it was a lie. (laughs) It was never the last time. Afterwards, a different thing or detail would pop up and it would start all over again. 
Oh man, my heart goes out to all of you who have experienced this. You know what he's talking about. Um, it is a lie. I love that he called that out. It is a lie. Toxic anxiety lies to you. It's not giving you accurate information. It was never the last time until he stopped giving into the compulsions. And then they stopped. And he was able to get confidence that he could move forward in his life and recognize that he wasn't constantly sinning every moment of his um, awaking life. Um, within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have very clear doctrine from the apostles and prophets about confession. The Bible dictionary outlines appropriate confession. I'll refer you readers to that. And Elder Gong um, gave this quote. This was in uh, his conference talk from 2016. Once we repent and priesthood leaders declare us worthy, we need not continue to confess and confess these past sins. To be worthy does not mean to be perfect. Heavenly Father's plan of happiness invites us to be humbly at peace on our life's journey to someday become perfected in Christ, not constantly worried, frustrated, or unhappy in our imperfections today. Uh, in the appendix of the book, I have an extensive collection of quotes from church leaders, from things they've written or things from conference talks that clarify that doctrine. So again, if you have confessed and repented with a priesthood leader, and then your anxiety is popping up and saying, yeah, but, yeah, but, this detail or that detail, you can know that that's born from anxiety because you have done what was required from an ecclesiastical perspective to be forgiven. So in the Book of Mormon, we see a beautiful example of how repentance should work um, in the story of Alma the Younger. Alma was harrowed by his sins and racked with eternal torment. And I would say that that's the experience of people with scrupulosity. They're constantly being harrowed up by what they feel are their sins, and they are racked with eternal torment. However, in scrupulosity, compulsive repentance in the absence of legitimate sin does not bring relief. Whereas Alma the Younger, in his story, when he received Jesus Christ, his torment was relieved. He was able to feel the joy of repentance and the joy that comes through our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his atonement to cleanse us. So um, just to read a little bit from Alma, Alma 38.8, I did cry out unto the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy, and I did find peace to my soul. That's how repentance is supposed to work for us. If we are repenting and we cannot find that peace, something's getting in the way. Something else is going on. Because repentance is about turning. It's about turning to our Heavenly Father, turning away from our sin and doing it about face to face God, to face our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a change of heart. And if we have done that, we should be able to feel the joy and blessings of forgiveness and repentance. And yet in scrupulosity, the anxiety gets in the way and it causes 
a lot of distress for people. So I had one client say this, um, and this was spoken about when she was in the heart of her scrupulous crisis. I didn't have the judgment at the time to know what was really happening. All I knew is I felt horrible and couldn't feel better. I didn't know what to do, and I was totally stuck. Repenting wasn't working. Now, repenting will work when you don't have toxic anxiety in the way, and it still does. You've been forgiven, but you can't perceive the peace and joy that comes from that repentance because the anxiety has corrupted that and gotten in the way. I also want to highlight the word she used, stuck. I often tell my clients, OCD is a disorder of stuckness. People are like, why am I stuck on this? Why can't I get over this? You know, maybe it's just one thing from their past. Everything else is fine, but they can't get over this one thing. If you are stuck, that's part of an obsessive compulsive cycle is that stuckness. So I don't give you that. All right, let's also talk. Uh, we talked about compulsions. Let's also talk about avoidance. Because uh, again, that's another thing that we can control as far as how things go in the OCD cycle. And um, compulsions and avoidance can go under a, an umbrella term called safety behaviors or safety seeking behaviors. Safety behaviors are coping behaviors used to reduce anxiety and fear when the user feels threatened. So the reason you're doing a compulsion or the reason you're avoiding is because you're trying to neutralize that anxiety. Those are safety-seeking behaviors. And what I'd like you listeners to think about is that safety behaviors are actually not safe because as we've already discussed, they actually make your anxiety worse in the long run. So here are some safety behaviors, escape or avoidance, that are often seen in scrupulosity. And maybe some of your listeners will notice that they've done some of these. Avoiding church or other meetings. Sitting in the back of meetings to be able to make an early or easy escape or sitting in the lobby completely and not even going into the main meeting area. Avoiding eye contact, avoiding talking to others, turning down invitations to activities, leaving church when a triggering topic comes up, avoiding or procrastinating work on your callings, avoiding prayer, scripture study, or other personal worship activities such as temple attendance, or even turning down callings. And here's the problem with avoidance in a religious context. Inactivity due to mental health issues can actually weaken faith. So in Romans, we learn that faith comes by hearing the word. And in Alma, we learn that faith grows by nourishing seeds of faith. So if we start avoiding so much that we're taking ourselves away from any religious content, we can actually give ourselves a double assault. Because now we're struggling with the anxiety and now we are having a legitimate weakening of faith because we're not having that fellowship with the saints. We're not having that engagement with the church doctrine through scripture study or other things. So escape and avoidance behaviors will create greater anxiety in the long run. Um, these safety behaviors, although useful for reducing anxiety in the short term, might become maladaptive over the long term by prolonging anxiety and fear of non-threatening situations. So again, we're getting this corrupt process of toxic anxiety overgeneralized to situations now that there's not a legitimate threat. And that's why this is toxic anxiety. So let's talk briefly about the voluntary parts of OCD. What 
is within your control. The first is your interpretation and response to unwanted, distressing, intrusive thoughts. This is where in treatment, we work on things such as mindfulness, which is very popular in our culture today. Your readers or listeners may understand that term. Uh, Diffusion, which is where we're trying to separate from the obsessive compulsive thought and be able to see it simply as a thought that we can then decide what to do with rather than being fused with it where we buy it hook, line, and sinker as our reality. And then we also work on cognitive restructuring using a lot of cognitive techniques and skills, um, giving yourself kind of a dose of reality and recognizing that what the experience is not real can be part of that cognitive work. And then number two, what's within your control? Whether you choose to use compulsions and avoidance in response to the anxiety, and that's what we do in treatment as well in exposure response response prevention. So that will lead us into our discussion about treatment. Scrupulosity, as I mentioned, is a form of OCD, and many people with scrupulosity also struggle with other flavors of OCD. So it's fairly clear to be able to say, yes, I need treatment for this. But perhaps those with a predominantly scrupulous presentation, and they're just worried about these types of worthiness issues, they may not really believe that it's a mental health issue or that it's an obsessive compulsive cycle. They may just think, oh, I just need to work harder at scripture study. I just need to have more faith. I just need to do this. Uh, Jeffrey Holland has been a nice advocate for mental health treatment. He said this in his October 2013 talk, Like a Broken Vessel. If you had appendicitis, God would expect you to seek a priesthood blessing and get the best medical care available. So too with emotional disorders. Our Father in Heaven expects us to use all of the marvelous gifts He has provided in this glorious dispensation. So scrupulosity may have religious content, but it's not a religious problem. It's an anxiety problem that needs treatment from anxiety experts. Now, before the 1960s, OCD was considered non-responsive to treatment. Because if you think about what we talked about earlier, if, if the experience you're having is on the side of the chart that says, hey, this is really anxiety. I said, our intervention is not only to not obey it, we're actually going to do the opposite. That might have surprised some of your listeners. That's why OCD was considered non-responsive for so long. Because anxiety doesn't respond to common sense. The common sense would be, oh, you're fine. Just read your scriptures some more. Yes, you should just go go make sure you're okay. Go confess again. Do all of that. And actually, anxiety treatment is paradoxical. And so that's why people didn't understand how to help people for so very long. So there are some Christian figures I mentioned earlier, St. Therese, that are believed to have had scrupulosity. And they suffered and suffered for decades of their life because nobody knew how to help them. Martin Luther, who was the catalyst for the Reformation from the Catholic Church, John Bunyan, St. Therese. If your listeners are interested in an excellent book, it's called Can Christianity Cure Obsessive Compulsive Disorder? A Psychiatrist Explores the Role of Faith in Treatment. And he goes through the stories of these individuals and how much they suffered. And most of them, by the end of their lives, sort of had to figure out on their own that they couldn't give in to the 
obsessions and they had to do the opposite. But they didn't have a therapist to be able to tell them that. They didn't have someone to say, hey, you've got to do the opposite. So it was considered non-responsive. But now, as we've developed these exposure response treatments, you can get help for your OCD. You don't have to keep suffering. So in exposure, we lean into the fear and we face the fear rather than trying to avoid it. Well, what does that look like in scrupulosity? If you have a germ fear, you can go touch some dirt and not wash your hands. That seems kind of, okay, I can get that. So this is where scrupulosity treatment does become a little nuanced and is a little bit different for the therapist. We have to do a lot of our work rather than doing physical overt actions. We have to do it mentally with ideas, words, and imagery. So it's, it's a more nuanced process. But a lot of people fear, hey, if I go to treatment, is a therapist going to make me sin? Like, are they going to make me do what I'm afraid of doing? And here's what I'd like to say to you. If your therapist understands scrupulosity truly, and they know the research, they will never ask you to do something that your faith tradition believes is sinful. They will operate within the bounds of your religious faith, whatever that is. They'll respect your belief. So if you come from a religious tradition, such as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that believes viewing pornography is not acceptable, you will not have a therapist say, oh, let's just view pornography and have you get used to looking at it so you're not so anxious. However, a therapist that doesn't truly understand it, I have heard of some who have asked people to do that. It's not appropriate. And you as a client need to make sure you never do anything that is not appropriate according to your religious belief. Okay, so I've actually just created a dilemma for you. If you're worried about everything being sinful, how do you know if what the therapist is saying is appropriate or not? And if you're concerned about that, you can bring in what the researchers call a religious advisor. It's not a religious leader, but it would be anybody of your faith who shares your religious belief and also understands obsessive compulsive disorder. And you can just bring them in and say, hey, the therapist and I have worked out this exposure plan. And the person can say, sounds good, or eh, that probably isn't quite appropriate. We should tweak it a little bit. So don't hesitate to bring in someone to assist you if you don't feel like the therapist can be um, trusted in that way. We don't expose you to sin. We don't ca cause you to sin and call it exposure. That's unethical, inappropriate, and ignorant. What we do is we expose you to the fear of sin. So we talk about the ideas of, I'm afraid I did this. And then we explore, well, if, you, if that were true that you had really did, done this, what are you afraid is going to happen? And then we explore those fears. And by exploring those fears, the anxiety tends to come down. Um, now, treatment for OCD is effective, but it's not typically a 100% cure for people. So I want to be uh, completely upfront about that. 50 to 75% of people may remain symptomatic after treatment. However, I don't want that to be discouraging because remaining symptomatic doesn't mean you're back in square one and you never got better. I have watched clients who maybe still have some OCD background noise. I have seen them completely and miraculously change their lives and get their lives back, but they still have a little leftover stuff that kind of comes in. So even if it doesn't go away permanently as a cure, 
you can absolutely reclaim your quality of life. You can reclaim peace and joy in the gospel of Jesus Christ by weeding out that toxic anxiety. So uh, one client said this, as far as the OCD, I still have lingering tendencies towards details and honesty and exactness. But by being mindful of those when they creep in, I've come to a point where I can dismiss them quickly most of the time, even without the help of medication. And I wanted to share another comment from another client about this idea of background noise. She said, it is hard to describe how much control of my life I have gained back. Since I have been in therapy, I've grown a lot and gained my happiness back. I'm beyond grateful for the quality of life that I'm able to live. That being said, scrupulosity OCD has a way of finding the cracks and capitalizing on them. I find myself having repetitive thoughts about things a friend, professor, or family member said. I worry about minuscule things that my scrupulosity latches onto. I obsess about doing the right thing. And when I've done the wrong thing, I cycle through scrupulous topics that I've already beaten to the ground. And then she says this, thankfully, these experiences no longer control my life and they have taken a back seat. Finding joy and peace is possible. And then she says, keep pushing, hmm. keep, keep working at it. So some people encounter a really great, recovery and can just kind of move on. For others, I would say for the majority of people, it may be something that they take along with them in their lives. But at what level of suffering is the question? And just because it's not a perfect cure necessarily for everyone doesn't mean that it's not miraculous in the types of changes that people can experience. So please do what you can, whether it's with self-help or finding a professional to help you, do what you can to get to the best place possible. All right, I have two other things I'd like to talk about just briefly as we end. Um, what church resources might be helpful to individuals? And what I'd like to say about this, I mentioned that those with scrupulosity know the doctrines. So certainly you can study the doctrines, especially if you have a doctrine that you know has gotten skewed by the anxiety in some way. You can go back to the scriptures and Read again about the nature of God, such as his merciful nature or his kind nature or his long-suffering nature. Um, scriptures about grace and mercy. Um, I've put together at the, in the appendix of the book, there is a very lengthy compilation of scriptures that your listeners can enjoy, or they can certainly find those scriptures on their own as well. And then you can also identify anti-scrupulosity teachings in talks from the church leaders. Um, I've also put, as I mentioned, a, a compilation of those together in the appendix of the book as well. I'll give your readers a couple of resources here just for them to start thinking about this issue. Uh, Dallin H. Oaks, BYU Speeches, June 1992. His talk was called, Our Strengths Can Become Our Downfall. Russell M. Nelson, October 1995, Perfection Pending. Jeffrey R. Holland, October 2017, Be Ye Perfect Eventually. Gary E. Stevenson, October 2017, Spiritual Eclipse. And... Brad Wilcox, October 2021, Worthiness is Not Flawlessness. 
and Vern Stanfield, April 2023. That was just last conference, The Imperfect Harvest. This may not be a comprehensive list, but this is a good start for your readers. But I want our listeners, I want them to recognize, though, again, because scrupulosity at the core is an anxiety disorder, reading and listening to these talks aren't going to solve your problem 100%. They may be comforting and they may help you with some of the cognitive restructuring you need to do around certain ideas and go, okay, that's not what the church leaders are teaching. What I'm believing isn't accurate. That's all helpful. So it's going to be useful, but don't rely simply on the church resources. You need the therapy for the anxiety. Another cognitive strategy you can utilize uh, as a religious believer is to transfer responsibility to God. And that is talked about in the book that I mentioned earlier, Can Christianity Cure Obsessive Compulsive Disorder? And it's a cognitive strategy that basically says, I don't know if what I'm doing is sinful, but I'm going to trust God as an omnipotent, loving God that he brought me to therapy. And I'm going to just keep moving forward and trust that it's on God, something like that. And that's actually been very helpful for clients to have the courage to move forward in treatment. So those are some religious um, resources you can use. Another um, thing I'd like to address is what can church leaders do? And what I'd like to say here that I feel really strongly about is church leaders, church teachers, gospel doctrine teachers, missionaries, etc. Teach the doctrine that's laid out in the scriptures and the church handbook, the Bible dictionary, gospel topics, the official church resources on the church website. Don't simply offer your opinion about an important gospel principle. So, for example, uh, number one, avoid casual statements indicating your opinions surrounding confession or other gospel principles that someone with scrupulosity may internalize as a fact or doctrine. So, for example, I mentioned the Bible Dictionary entry on confession earlier. It states confession to a church official, in most cases the bishop, is necessary whenever one's transgression is of a nature for which the church might impose loss of membership or other disciplinary action. The bishop cannot and does not forgive sin, but he may judge the matter and waive the penalty that the church might otherwise impose against the person. The repentant sinner must still make confession and obtain forgiveness of the Lord. So one of my clients commented once that he remembered a particular seminary teacher made a statement in class that if a student was unsure if she or he should confess to the bishop about a potential sin, then that meant they probably should. Now, it was obviously a well-meant statement. Uh, This teacher was trying to counsel these young teenagers how to navigate this area. However, although it was well-meaning, it was not accurate based on what we just read from the Bible dictionary. That is the church's official statement. So you want to make sure that you are in line teaching the doctrines as the official church has put out. So. What should an individual do if they're not sure? A teenager, they should counsel with their parents. Their parents may send them to their bishop to counsel, or their parents may talk about something else and say, no, that's not really something you need to worry about. So we should turn teenagers to their parents for guidance and counsel, not give them some opinion that's going to cause them some scrupulous fear. So this particular client, um, even though he had made a lot of progress in his scrupulous journey through therapy, Even now, when things could come up, 
this comment from the seminary teacher will still come into his mind. Hmm. It, it just has borne a place in his mind, just drilled a hole in there. So we want to be very careful the types of statements we make as a church teacher or a church leader. Number two, we want to avoid turning the gospel principles into checklists. That is a given based on our discussion earlier about legalism. Elder Bednar has been very open about this idea. He has talked about this in repeated um, situations, trainings, and conference talks, for example. I'll give you just one statement from him from his October 2017 general conference talk called Exceeding Great and Precious Promises. He says, ultimately, what we become is the result of our knowledge of and willingness to learn from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. It is not merely the sum total of our daily pursuits over the course of a lifetime. The gospel is so much more than a routine checklist of discrete tasks to be performed. Rather, it is a magnificent tapestry of truth fitly framed and woven together, designed to help us become like our Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, even partakers of the divine nature. Truly, we are blinded by looking beyond the mark when this overarching spiritual reality is overshadowed by the cares, concerns, and casualness of the world. And we could also add back in the checklists from that legalistic perspective. Number three, what can church leaders do, church teachers do? Express faith, express hope, express confidence that the atonement of Jesus Christ is what saves us and perfects us. It's not our own legalistic efforts. So the doctrine of Christ is very clearly taught throughout many, many scriptures. Just one, for example, Moroni 10, 32 to 33. Yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in him. We are not going to perfect ourselves. In fact, perfection, as we learned from President Nelson in his talk, Perfection Pending from 1995, perfection doesn't come until after the resurrection, actually. But we will not ever perfect ourselves and be error-free or mistake-free in this mortal life. So, yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in him. Then is his grace sufficient for you, that by his grace ye may be perfect in Christ. If ye by the grace of God are perfect in Christ and deny not his power, then are ye sanctified in Christ by the grace of God through the shedding of the blood of Christ, which is in the covenant of the Father, under the remission of your sins, that you become holy without spot. And I think to circle back to where we talked about views of salvation, that articulates perfectly the balance of costly grace, that something is required of God through the atonement of his son, and something is also required of us to come unto Christ and to allow him to perfect us. Uh, Number four, what church leaders can do. Every church member should have at least three or four people with stewardship over them from the ward perspective, just based on how our church is organized. You have a bishop, you have an elders quorum and a Relief Society president, depending on if it's a male or female, and then each person's supposed to have two ministering brothers or sisters. So we need to make sure that those who are suffering silently are not forgotten. And we need to reach out to those within our stewardship, number one, and make sure that we are getting to know them and ministering to them well enough that they will trust us to share some of these types of fears. And then number two, we need to even reach out beyond our official assigned ministering 
and minister to those that we see are struggling. If you know something about scrupulosity, you can be a mental health missionary or advocate to help somebody else get into treatment. I've had quite a few clients say that they didn't even know what was happening to them, but they found out because, for example, one client, their mom was on a walk with their neighbor and she was talking about her missionary symptoms. And the neighbor said, hey, that sounds like something called scrupulosity. And just giving the mom the word scrupulosity, she was able to get online and start doing some research. So please minister to everyone that you come in contact with. If you see someone silently suffering, go talk to them. Be willing to have some vulnerable conversations. If you struggle with scrupulosity yourself, maybe take the leap to have courage and be real with someone and say, hey, you know, I struggle with something that's called scrupulosity. I worry about things like this. I'm wondering if that's part of your experience. Has that happened for you? And try to be a mental health advocate and missionary. But certainly as church leaders and church teachers, those within our stewardship, we need to be particularly mindful of. We need to reach out, not just to those who get the diagnosis of cancer, not just to those who are having a surgery, although of course those are important people to reach out to, but we need to reach out to those that may be suffering very severely and yet in silence. So in summary, again, I offer a lot of client stories because I think that means the most. The book is filled with client stories. It's the best thing in the book, frankly. I'm sure it's way better than anything I could share. So I thought we would end today with a couple of client quotes just to wrap that up. My loyalty to God and desire to be completely honest is still there, one individual says. It was just necessary to recalibrate that loyalty in a healthy way. I believe I'm more loyal now than I've ever been. It's just manifested in the correct and healthy actions and feelings. So if you're worried that treatment's going to weaken your faith or take you away from your faith, realize, again, we are treating the anxiety to pull that corrupt, corrupt um, process, uh, the, to pull the corruptness that the anxiety causes in your religious experience. We're trying to pull that out and clear it out so that you can now manifest your life according to your true values. So another client said this, if you really want a stronger, closer connection with God and to be able to hear his voice more clearly, then make therapy a priority because therapy helps clear out the chaos that disrupts your relationship to God. Just to summarize the ideas we've shared there. So I hope some of these ideas are helpful. Very helpful. Um, listeners, I'm just so moved by Dr. McClendon. Every time I listen to her, my respect, admiration, love for her and the work she's doing increases. And I, I love that you spent so much, you spent a fair amount of time at the beginning of the podcast, just laying a lot of foundational work to help us understand scrupulosity versus just going into stories. And that makes the yeah. stories much more a meaningful when there's a foundation and you're didn't come on here as a, as a therapist with expertise, you do, and you are, but you also have this gift of tying it into the gospel of Jesus Christ and what our leaders are teaching and, and some examples of how we can do better, which is, this is not a spiritual weakness as Dr. McLennan is teaching us. And so I think to be really good at your space, you have to understand what it means to be a Latter-day Saint. And 
understand what our leaders are teaching, what our doctrine really is. And so the totality of your ministry in this space is so needed. And this is a serious book, listeners. It's 400 pages. <laughs> yes, um, it is 400 pages. Just be prepared. And you are... it, it, was meant, it was meant to be very comprehensive because I wanted to answer any question that someone might have. So for example, if treatment isn't very helpful and someone is very debilitated, there are actually surgeries for OCD. Didn't know if anybody knew about that. So I introduced those just briefly in the book because I'm not a medical person, but just enough that if that felt like something you wanted to pursue, you could look for it. So it is a very comprehensive book, but I do hope also all the client stories laced throughout it makes it very readable. One of the questions I get a lot is because people know I've done some podcasts about scrupulosity and know I'm connected with you. And I spoke at a fireside a couple of months ago, not on this subject. I'm not an expert on this subject, listeners, but one of the moms came up to me and said, is Dr. McClendon taking new patients? What's her email address? And so <laughs> a lot of listeners right now are wondering, are you available to take patients or will your website have modules that my that me or my kid or how do I find a good therapist? I'm not in Utah. You're licensed in Utah, even if you're taking new clients. So there's a lot of people probably wondering about that space. So guide individuals and parents. Yes. So I, I do take clients. I have a waiting list um, that fluctuates in length throughout the year. Summer is always the slowest time. Fall is always the busiest time. But I do get through my wait list. So it's better to get on it so you can That's get your good. turn. Quickly, and you've, and you've got to um, be. In Utah. I am licensed in the state of Utah, but I'm part of an interjurisdictional legislation called SIPACT that many states have gotten on board with that allows me to see people across state lines. And currently, there are 40 states that are participating. So there's only 10 states right now that I'm not allowed to work with. That's great. So actually, a large portion of my clients are out of state, and I work with them over telehealth or video chat. Um, not everybody may necessarily feel like they need personal therapy um, sessions. Um, if you have particularly mild case, you may be able to do some work with self-help treatment. So I have laid out self-help treatment principles in the book very um, extensively. Also on my website, I do have an online scrupulosity course that also lays out that treatment if you want a more personal experience with me on video walking you through things and you can pause the video and work on things that is a resource as well um and and then there's just a lot of podcasts and articles that they can get to but particularly needing therapy um there are others as well that see people with scrupulosity and so it may be just kind of doing your research and trying to find a therapist there um some people will want to be able to use their insurance premiums. And I don't work directly with insurance, so I'm an out-of-network provider. But a lot of people have decided that that is important enough to work with me, that they're willing to work with their insurance company out of network. So they do get some reimbursement for that. But you can go into your insurance network website under find a provider, You know, try to find a treatment provider within a certain area that you're willing to drive and then find one that says they work with OCD. And then I would say, if you find two or three of those, look at their websites and see what they talk about on their websites. And that can give you a good feel for who they are and the kind of treatment that they do. So that's just a little step as to how they might be able to find a therapist 
therapist if they're, for whatever reason, not drawn to want to work with me personally. That's kind of a good pra- practical. Um, a lot of people ask that question. I'm sure you get it all the time. If I go to the website and look for OCD, is that usually a sign that the therapist would be able to handle, handles the right word, <laughs> um, have expertise and scrupulosity, or do you need to drill down one level further um, and make sure they have a kind of a subset expertise and scrupulosity? Preferably, you could drill down another layer. But again, there's not a lot of people who do this, so you might not be able to do that. But if they understand treatment principles for OCD and they're willing to have you teach them about your religious belief system and how that plays out in your fears, a competent therapist should be able to work with you. And if they're competent and they realize they don't understand scrupulosity, hopefully they'll start to educate themselves so that they can work with you appropriately. So, but definitely you you need to not go to a therapist that just says they treat general anxiety and they're just going to use talk therapy that can actually make OCD worse. Because like we talked about, we actually have to do the opposite. Talk therapy comes more from common sense and it's going to give you counsel that isn't in line with what the OCD treatment experts would tell you. So you don't want to just get a general therapist that can give you general counseling. You do want to find at least a, a therapist that, that specifies that they work with obsessive compulsive disorder. And um, one of our, our probably most recent guests talking about his own scrupulosity, really brave, it op- opened up as Gregory Leighton. And he does talk about, mul- not multiple, but several therapists. And it wasn't until he got to you and the correct diagnosis. So it is really important to your point to find the right kind of therapist. Because um, I think he talks about how maybe he took some step backwards with not getting the right kind of clinical help that he needed and how helpful it was finally um, to find you. And it was really brave. It can, it can be a much longer process if you're not getting the right treatment. I have a client who has was in treatment for two years previous to meeting me. Yeah. And he said, not only was I not making progress, I was actively deteriorating and getting worse. And then as soon as we started working together and I corrected the problems that the yeah. other therapist was giving him counsel about as far as what he should be doing. The therapist was literally telling him to do the opposite of what I knew needed to happen. As soon as we made those corrections, he started making progress immediately. Um, Talk about, now I'm going back to our own story, listeners, Ben, that I started with, our youngest of six six kids, four sons. And, you know, um, even in hindsight, we don't, I don't see anything in his life it would cause me to think he had scrupulosity that then manifests itself on his mission. He was meeting with his bishop pretty frequently, but our other sons did leading up to their mission. And I think I now know he was looking for reassurance and confessing things that need to be confessed. But I was never in the loop on that as a dad. Um, what he was talking to the bishop about, he was blessing the sacrament and held the temple recommends. So I didn't see any. And so the question is maybe for you know, parents that are wondering, you know, what could I see in my, I realize it's just my story as a parent trying to see this in advance, because I wish I'd somehow seen this before he got on that plane for Samoa. So we could have nipped this in the bud or sort of figured out something was going here before he got into this really dark place of suicidal ideation on a remote island somewhere in the Samoan islands. So any thoughts on that for parents? So OCD really attacks the things that you value the most. And mental health problems in general are often manifest in the early 20s. 
just developmentally. And so our young college-age kids and our young missionaries are at the ripe time to have these problems kind of manifest even for the first time. So you may not be able to see anything overt that comes out, but if you're noticing a lot of stress and fear around worthiness or doctrinal issues, they're talking a lot about something, maybe more than you would think is typical, that could be a sign. Also, um, when if you do see repeated confessions, you know, and that's hard because oftentimes missionaries meet with their ecclesiastical leaders for multiple times. And it's not always about confession either. They're just True. preparing for a mission and meeting with the state president just to make sure that they're ready. And so that's not necessarily always going to be a, a factor. But if if the religious experience in general is one of fear and stress, that's going to be something you want to key into. Say, honey, I, I love that you care about being a good son or daughter of God, and that you really want to do what's right. But Heavenly Father doesn't want you to be in torment all the time. Like if you're just in agony all the time, something's going on, you know? So I'd really I'd really look out for kind of the, the language and the behavior and such that you see around that kind of religious stuff. If you notice every time something is brought up at church, your child has a horrible day the rest of Sunday and they isolate in their room and won't participate. Something may be going on there. That's a really good answer. And um, just some thoughts that come to mind, parents, because even now you going back, I still don't have any, you know, yellow flags or any, and I obviously am, you know, you don't know everything that's going on in your kid's mind. But I, I think what I would do, parents, is I would probably pull out Dr. McClendon's Ensign articles, Leahona articles. Those two articles, I wouldn't pull out the 400-page book and encourage my pre-missionary son to read it. You're smiling because you know that's probably not realistic, but you could start with the two Ensign articles that Dr. McClendon, they're on our website. We'll link to that in the show notes. And in a family night, you could just, to your adultish kids, you may have an idea. Just let's talk about OCD through this Ensign article. And let's talk about scrupulosity as kind of a one-two, maybe spread over and just introduce. I don't think you're going to mint a scrupulosity kid by talking about it. I think you're going to, um, give your smile, right. you know, it's not going to like, yes. cause a... um, our fame, our famous uh, musician within the church, Hillary Weeks on her website, not too long ago, she had a post where she had learned about scrupulosity and she got her family together and printed out some things and discussed it with them and said, how are we doing in this as a family? And she very openly talked about this and she didn't say that anyone in her family had it or struggled with it, but she felt it was important enough to make sure they weren't getting into kind of a legalistic mindset that could then spark into the toxic anxiety piece. So uh, we can all follow Hillary Weeks' example and, and make sure we are educating our families and doing that as well. And that could be potentially a fifth Sunday in a YSA ward or a home ward. You could, you know, talk to the adults about it in a fifth Sunday so the parents are aware of it and they could talk um, to their kids about the subject. So just, I think we're both inviting you to act on your impressions um, in my second book, listeners, and I don't want you to not read Deborah's book, but I did one chapter on overcoming rescupiosity, chapter seven of my second book, Improving Latter-day Saint Culture. And it's not a clinical um, chapter um, like Dr. McClendon's is, but I just shared our experience. And one father in our ward read that chapter to his son as he was leaving on his mission, just to kind of give him a heads up. And then that son that father told me that son opened up a little bit. I think what Ben felt, I'm feeling a little bit. And 
I just love that that father in, in the desire to prepare his son or a daughter for a mission yeah, wonderful. Um, had a little bit of conversation in this space. So that kiddo recognized this is a thing. It's not a spiritual weakness. And I can open up to my mom or dad about whatever's going on. We, as parents, we want to create a culture where kids can open up. And if they're in the middle of intr- intrusive thoughts and wondering if they're worthy enough, they may not feel comfortable opening up completely to everybody. And We've had that, you know, so I've, you know, we recognize that. That's why we are grateful our kids open up with other people. Um, I've thought, I wrote one guest on the podcast for the first time I ever talked about his dreams. And um, would you talk, is dreams kind of like intrusive thoughts? Because sometimes we have really crazy dreams, Dr. McClendon. And they're sometimes in, under the, are they under the umbrella of dr- intrusive thoughts where we can't control our dreams and we shouldn't feel guilty for our dreams because they don't match our values. Any, have you thought of talking sure. about that before? <laughs> sure. And, and I will say on the outset, I'm not an expert on, on dreams. dreams. <laughs> <laughs> However, we do know from the scriptures, dreams can be revelatory. Oh, there you and go. we also Going back know to the from scriptures. the craziness of our dreams, they can also be absolute garbage that mean nothing. <laughs> so in, in general, when we're dreaming, our, our brain is taking little snippets of data from our life and it's kind of putting it all together and it gets things put together in really bizarre, weird ways sometimes. So absolutely, we are not accountable for our dreams. We are not consciously creating something. If someone is having an inappropriate sexual dream or something that really scares or concerns them, that's not something you're accountable for, that you need to repent for because you're not conscious, you're not choosing to do that. So I would, I would take dreams unless you have a purely revelatory dream that you can absolutely know was revelation because the spirit confirmed it. Yeah, that's true. With that piece aside, I would just take the dreams as go, wow, that was wacky garbage. You know, <laughs> there you give giving really thoughtful, nuanced answers. And I thinking of my own dreams there have been revelatory dreams where I felt really impressed to act yes. upon a very, and there was no f- Back to your quote of Elder Renlund's talk that I wrote down, personal revelation doesn't have fear, anxiety, and worry. And so maybe in the context of what you just taught us about Elder Renlund in the context of dreams, that was really thoughtful. I have very wacky dreams, and I can (laughs) usually identify which parts of my day got put into it. And, And they're usually parts of the day that are not connected to each other in any way, shape, or form. And then the dream is just weird. But I will say... And I've talked openly at Education Week about it. I have had one dream that I would say was absolutely revelatory. And I've, I've spoken about it before. One dream and all the rest, I would just say, are wacky garbage. So just take that with a grain of salt and recognize that it's just part of having a mortal brain. And it's its way of consolidating information. Um, I love this. You normalize thoughts. You know, we can't. Um, you, this is the other thing I wrote down can't control a thought that comes into your mind. And I think that that's, you know, I, I grew up in an era where I was told to sing a song when a thought came in my mind, often a sexual thought was inappropriate. And now when that song comes on listeners, it's a common LDS song. All I, I can't even remember the thought now. I just knew it was an inappropriate yeah. sexual thought. So sometimes I'm thinking, what was that thought from age 15? That's like 50 years ago. And so that whole cycle has not been helpful for me. I'm not saying not sing a song, maybe that is helpful for some when a thought, but I think we have to do what you've done is de-shame thoughts. Um, exactly. And recognize that's just part of the mortal experience and accept that. And then 
we can do whatever we want to do. Right. Because once we start to control our thoughts, that's when the obsessive compulsive cycle really starts to take hold. So it's, it's, and I didn't talk a lot about that, but trying to control it is part of the problem. But what you can do is notice the thought. You can label it as a weird thought or a wacky thought or an OCD thought or an anxious thought. But then you recognize, well, that's not in line with my values. So I'm not going to pay attention to it. I'm just going to move forward. But it's once you try to control it and make it go away. I put make in air quotes, right? (laughs) Once I try to control it and try to make my thoughts do something, that's when I get into a battle. And I'm in a tug of war with my own anxiety. And the only way you can win that tug of war is you have to drop the rope. You don't keep pulling. Uh, It's just such a helpful podcast. Listeners, I just, you know, I want to give shout outs to the people that have, in our darkest moment, one of our darkest moments, parenting a kid who was in a really dark place doing really good things and had done nothing wrong to get in that dark place except his honest desire to want to bring the people of Samoa um, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything he was doing was out of love for this people that he already had a natural love tooth through his football years and the Polynesian people. He got himself and he didn't do it, but his thoughts did. And um, we just fasted and prayed. My dear wife was on her knees constantly during this crisis. And, you know, prayers get answered through other people, but I just publicly like to thank people sometimes. So I'm going to read some names here. Our priesthood leaders, Bishop Campbell and President Sturt, were terrific. They did not know what was going on here, um, but they knew enough to know they didn't know what was going on here, and they went wonderful. They went slow. Good. And Good. they realized we all realized he was emotionally safe enough that he would, could continue to serve while we tried to figure out what was going on. Now, if that had been different, and he was in an absolutely emotional crisis, and um, that would be different, um, then. You know, we, Kent Griffiths, I went to lunch with, the therapist here in Salt Lake. He's the one I referenced at the beginning that I described the symptoms. He turned around his phone. He said, scrupulosity. (laughs) And we just had this puzzle that was missing pieces, and he put them all together for us. Now, none of us at this point were clinically trained. So we, well, he was, but he's not going to be meeting with our son. So and my wife found your articles, both of them, now that I'm remembering the first one and the second one. And then we had an LDS therapist talking about probably what our son was going through. And then we fed all this information through our priesthood leaders, the mission president. And he fed it all to the mental health counselor that happened to be living on that very island, Becky Edwards from Utah, who I mentioned earlier, who had enough expertise in the space and read your articles as she's trying to do the right thing. and. Um, really helped him get in a stable place and realize this is not a spiritual weakness. And then you, when he came home and those multiple drives to Utah County and your willingness to take time for him and how much he enjoyed those visits and came home just feeling hope. What a gift to give somebody hope and that they're Confidence I talked about, right? And he had confidence and he married his high school girlfriend and got on with his life. But the other name I'd like to shout out to is Tim Chavez, who as in the middle of this crisis, we were recording a podcast and I just opened up to Tim and he says, well, let me tell you about my scrupulosity. And I didn't know Tim at all. And he just said, and he, this was going on his mission and Tim got this dark place that I am so unworthy to God 
that I can't work out my salvation, but I can still help others. And so he stayed on his mission this entire two years in this incredibly dark spot. And then he became the lifeline for our son during these few months because my son could talk to him about everything. Oh, it's wonderful. That was yeah, going on wonderful. in his life. And so listeners, I get, share that story of hope because often prayers are answered through others, but we have to be vulnerable like you invite us to do and share the reality of our lives. So Kent Griffiths wouldn't have known about our family situation if I wasn't vulnerable to share a little bit about it. And Tim Chavez. And and we were reading, my wife was reading the Ensign on a regular basis to so articles. So I'm not saying our story is your story, listeners, but that's my experience. The way prayers get answered is through acting on impressions that come into our lives. And our situation was a short-term it was a crisis, but resolved in a shorter term. You may be in a long-term crisis where there's ups and downs and setbacks, and this isn't nice. This isn't a nice, tidy story where he married his high school girlfriend and life's good forever after. So, yeah, I recognize that our our family story isn't everybody's family story, but I do believe the principles of our story scale to other stories. Any closing thoughts you'd like to share, Doctor McClendon? I just appreciate that you've shared that story to illustrate, too, that it's been a step-by-step process to get him to where he needed to be. A lot of little things happened along the way. And so to recognize, because so many people with these fears struggle identifying the Spirit, to recognize, as Elder Bednar talks about, you don't need to worry about it so much. The Spirit is leading you along because you are a covenant keeper and you're on the covenant path. The Spirit's leading you along, even if you don't always recognize it. And these pieces you just identified about Ben's story, I think, illustrate that really beautifully. And so I just encourage the listeners to follow those little promptings, even if they don't think it's a prompting, if they have an instinct even to just look up the word scrupulosity or to read a particular article, that may then lead them to their next step. So just have the courage. Just take that first step on the journey. Thank you, Dr. McClendon. From a personal standpoint, my wife and I are so grateful for you and your work and our faith community in general and all the lives you're blessing. And um, thanks for your level of preparation for this podcast, listeners. It's not like Dr. Dr. McClendon came on and just ad-libbed this. This is her style is to be very prepared. And the book represents the podcast and her work. She's very committed, very prepared, very intentional. Um, please check out our website for more information. We'll put that in the show notes as well as the Amazon link and the Desert Book link, or you can walk into Desert Book and buy her book there. Thank you very much for having me. You're most welcome. And thank you, listeners, for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm-hmm.